Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Dr. Aiken, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to deliver a lecture on a topic that is near and dear to my heart and I'm sure everyone who's here present and those who are watching. In 1997, my wife Kat and I moved here from North Atlanta for me to begin my MDiv 2 plus 2 international church planting degree. We both had been public school teachers who had come to faith in Jesus in our 20s. My passion for personal evangelism is based in part by the fact that I was a beneficiary of it. It was a student at my university that engaged me in a winsome conversation about the gospel. I was skeptical, though not about God's existence. My skepticism related to how could God possibly love a person like me. But the Spirit of God used that encounter, and I soon after turned from my sin, and I trusted in Jesus, and I was then blessed by being discipled by a farmer who immediately began to teach me that I was to live as a follower of Jesus and a fisher of men. He helped me to see that all of life, including my career as a public school teacher, provided an opportunity to share the hope of the gospel. And after teaching, coaching, and discipling high schoolers for nearly six years, I eventually felt called to serve cross-culturally. And that's what brought us to Southeastern as a student. I wanted to learn how to live out my part in God's story on a global scale. So my studies here on campus transitioned in 1999 when I was deployed with the International Mission Board, initially to a city in South Asia and then to a remote mountain village. It was there that my wife and I lived over a two-hour drive from the closest telephone or internet connection. We couldn't speak to those that we loved back here in the U.S. very often, but we were learning to speak the good news of the gospel to Muslims. I was shocked to learn that the Muslims with whom I was trying to communicate that good news, Jesus' death seemed like a betrayal of the character of God. So Islamic theology has developed all sorts of theories that, in their understanding, kept Jesus, or as they call him, Isa, off of the cross. Ironically, Muslims believe that they regard Jesus more highly, albeit as a prophet, than do Christians. The thought that God would allow Jesus to be crucified was simply untenable to my Muslim friends there in South Asia. Up until the time that I served there in South Asia, my understanding of the good news of the gospel was primarily propositional and transactional. By propositional, I mean that I thought that the gospel was a formula that we were to follow. And by transactional, I mean that I grasped that the gospel saves us from sin, but I was just beginning to learn how the gospel saves us for a reconciled relationship to God. And that to be reconciled with God relationally would necessarily produce reconciliation with others. I suppose that I'd inadvertently thought that the gospel was only part, albeit a central part, to the story of the Bible. But long conversations with Muslims when I lived in South Asia and then Hindus and Buddhists, as God gave me the opportunity to broaden the context of my ministry, forced me to wrestle with communicating the gospel among radically diverse worldviews. So it was out of desperation that I had to learn how to talk about the Bible with highly skeptical people. Much has changed in the world over the past two decades. Skepticism regarding the Bible is as common right here in my backyard in Wake Forest now as it was in those Asian mountain villages. The cross of Jesus to much of the world comes across as either weakness, a sentimental gesture with a sad ending, or absolute foolishness. Skepticism regarding Jesus spans from the apathetic agnostic to uh, the downright angry atheist. And much of it here in the West is rooted in the disparate and often incoherent messaging that Christians are sending based upon our appalling syncretism where we muddy the gospel with secondary or even tertiary issues. Now, to be clear, the Bible addresses a myriad of issues, but we must not set aside the foundational message of the Bible 
on the battlefield of our culture wars. The world desperately needs to wrestle with the implications of the clear, overarching meta-narrative of the scriptures. God delivered this message of hope to the world, not merely in a few verses or in a, a small section of the Bible. He delivered the good news in the context of the grandest of narratives that makes sense out of history broadly and out of uh, significance of the cross specifically. It's against that backdrop that we see the character of God displayed most profoundly in the cross of Christ. D.A. Carson once said, in short, the good news of Jesus Christ is virtually incoherent unless it is securely set into a biblical worldview. So my faculty lecture today is entitled Gospel, Story, and Worldview, The Cross of Christ and the Character of God. Now, though I didn't surrender to Jesus until I was nearly 22, I grew up in the misnomered Bible Belt with a worldview that was to some degree familiar with the Scriptures. But living on mission with God led me to ask, is there a way that I can faithfully proclaim the gospel that might connect to those who don't have a biblical worldview? Is there a way to communicate it so that the skeptics who disbelieve or distrust are then captivated by the character of God? I think there are clues when we observe how Jesus established a biblical worldview among his own disciples. Luke chapter 24 portrays how Jesus, after resurrecting, shared the gospel about himself and made meaning of the cross. Missiologist Paul Hebert uses the analogy of an iceberg to explain the concept of a worldview. Behavior and beliefs are what we see above the surface of the water, but the worldview is a hidden mass below the surface that keeps the iceberg afloat. He notes, if we convert people to only their beliefs and behavior, in time, their worldview will take over and the result is a form of Christo-paganism. Now, the latter half of Luke chapter 24 documents an encounter between Jesus and two of his disciples that radically shifts not just what's on the surface, but what's under the surface. It changes their worldview. The two men were leaving Jerusalem after the crucifixion, thinking that was the end of the story. But Jesus, hiding his identity from them, engaged them in a conversation, explaining how they had misunderstood from the law and the prophets because they were thinking that that was the end. But they had just witnessed the crucifixion of their master. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Luke summarizes the crescendo of that encounter, saying, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Beginning with the Torah, the book of Moses, beginning with Genesis chapter 1, Jesus reframed the stories of what we call the Old Testament, showing how he himself was the center and fulfillment of God's plan and purposes. The cross had not been a tragic accident where God had lost control of history. According to Jesus, the cross was precisely where God had led human history to its climax. And the resurrection, which they were about to understand, made the cross make sense. The result was that their hearts were burning with understanding and with passion. They understood that the crucifixion in light of God's overarching story demanded not only burning hearts, but burning lips, as they could not keep what they had just learned to themselves. That's why I believe that we communicate what we cherish. We will never communicate the gospel broadly until we cherish the gospel deeply. Luke documents how those disciples' familiarity with the person of Jesus had a seismic collision with the, uh, the cosmic plan of redemption. And that redemption wasn't limited to social or political freedoms. The rescue they experienced tore down the dividing wall between the secular and the sacred, providing them entrance into a life of worship and obedience. Various scholars have written far more about and more eloquently about the subject of the gospel through the grand narrative than I. Leslie Newbegin frames the importance of this understanding, saying, the way that we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life is a part? In their book, The True Story of the Whole World, 
Goheen and Bartholomew assert that Christians and even Christian scholars often break the Bible up into little bits, historical, devotional, moral, theological, and narrative bits. And when we allow that to happen, the Bible forfeits its claim to be the one comprehensive true story of the whole world. Scott McKnight in his book, The King Jesus Gospel, says the gospel is the story of Jesus told as the story of the climax of Israel, which in turn is the story of how the one true God is rescuing the world. And then Chris Wright in his tome, The Mission of God, captures the vast implications of this type of misunderstanding, asserting that the Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people and their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. I think you get the point. The gospel isn't just a transaction where our sins are forgiven. The gospel is far greater and more expansive than you or me. The good news doesn't just change our position before God. It launches a Copernican revolution at the depths of our worldview. The very way that we live and our purpose for living. I believe that the gospel saves us from sin, for God, into the church, and on to God's mission. And in 2008, I was serendipitously connected with a ministry called Spread Truth and its founder, Jerry, a good friend of mine. Since that time, I've partnered together with them for the last 13 years to help them to shape resources that communicate this gospel in the context of the whole narrative of Scripture. Today, on the way out, you'll receive a copy of a little booklet uh, that we put together as a gift from Spread Truth that summarizes the four plot movements and the 10 key points that I'm going to make in this talk today. And of course, there, there's an app for that where you can get it in about 24 different languages. So let's take the remainder of our time together today and let's skip like a stone across the still waters through the breathtaking landscape of human history in order to grasp the intersection of gospel and worldview. And as we do it, my prayer is that we'll all gain burning hearts and burning lips as we're reminded of how the cross of Christ conveys to us the impeccable character of God. So whether speaking with Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, or even atheists, I've found that there are four universal worldview questions. The answers to each of these framing not just what people believe, but how we live. The questions, how, how did it all begin? What went wrong with the world? Is there any hope? And what does the future hold? You see, regardless of where a person lives in the world, or even when in history a person lives, everyone subconsciously lives their lives according to the deep-seated answers to those questions. It shouldn't surprise us, then, that each of these universal worldview questions are addressed by the storyline of the Bible. The Bible is made up of 66 different books with 40-plus authors uh, spanning a period of over 1,500 years. But God has given it to us not in bits and pieces, but as one story, and it's the true story of the whole world. So there are four major plot movements in the Bible that address those four major worldview questions. The first is, how did it all begin? And the Bible gives us the story of creation. When discussing origins with those who are near to me but far from God, I try to be careful to focus on answering only those questions that the story itself answers. Questions about God's purpose in creating and the meaning that he gives to each aspect of his creation order. The best way to do that is to understand that God has given us his word primarily as self-revelation. God wants us to know who he is and what he is like so that we can fulfill our purpose by living in relationship with him and with the world around us. Therefore, we should center our telling of this part of the story on the main character of the story, God himself. You see, God is the author and the hero of the storyline of Scripture. He who has no beginning was there in the beginning. We who are not there in the beginning, we desperately need to know him if we're ever to find meaning and purpose in life. The God of the Bible isn't merely some unknowable force. G.K. Chesterton once mused, I have always felt that life was first a story, and if there's a story, there must be a storyteller. Though Moses is attributed human authorship of Genesis, the storyteller is, in fact, God. And that's where it all begins. Genesis 1.1, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning, 
God created. Bob Shogren writes about our propensity when we open the scriptures to be yearbook theologians. Perhaps you remember when you were in high school receiving your yearbook. What's the first thing that you did when you received your yearbook? You looked for yourself. But why? You know what you look like. Perhaps it's because you were desperately trying to find yourself in the grander story of your hometown community and among your peers. Not to get ahead of myself, but as fallen humans, we wrongfully write ourselves into the center of the story. That's why we're selfish, because we deem ourselves and our feelings to be more important than those of others. And that's why we're prideful, because we want to feel more powerful or more brilliant than others, people who uh, may be smarter than us. Ultimately, all of those vices reflect the fact that we do not know God as he is, as the author of life itself. And if he is the author, then he is the authority over all of that he has made, which leads to the second point, creation. God created all things with order, purpose, and direction. He made humanity bearing his own image so that we can relate to him through worship and obedience. Some scholars have likened Genesis chapter 1 to the, uh, uh, as the creation account viewed through a telescope, bringing the vastness of all that God has made into view. Days 1 through 3 provide the background on the realms that God created, the heavens above, the waters above, and the waters below, and then the earth and the vegetation. Days four through six are the inhabitants of those various realms. The sun, moon, and stars inhabit the heavens above. The birds inhabit the waters above. The fish, the waters below. And then animals and humans inhabit the land and live off of the vegetation. The creation account crescendos with God's creation of humans who are made imago Dei. You see, God made everything for his glory, but humans reflect God's goodness and glory in a unique way. If Genesis 1 provides a telescope view, then Genesis chapter 2 can be likened to a microscope, honing in on God's relationship with what he has made, particularly our human purpose. And while the landscape of Genesis 1 is as vast as the universe, that of Genesis 2 is focused on a particular location known as the Garden of Eden. And it's there that God places the first man and woman, establishing an ordered relationship between himself and them, between them and the rest of creation order. In fact, John Salehammer, who taught here years ago, noted that in Genesis 2.15, it conveys the nature of our vertical and horizontal relationships as we were created to worship and obey by cultivating and keeping the garden. Perhaps this is partially why theologians like G.K. Beale believe that Eden is the original temple and Adam its priest. But Adam wasn't to fulfill his purpose alone. He was given Eve, without whom he could not fulfill his broader purpose of spreading harmony and flourishing to the very ends of the earth. Which leads to the third point in the creation story, harmony. God's image bearers were to cultivate his created order and to fill it with worshipers. Back in Genesis 1, after each creative act, God had proclaimed all of it to be good. But then after entrusting the cultivation to the first man and woman, he said it was very good. Now understand, good wasn't some subjective assessment. Rather, it conveyed that everything that God made was in order and prepared to fulfill his creative purposes. Creation was ordered, but not static. It was good, but not in its final form. The conditions for flourishing were in place, but humanity as vice regents were meant to steward it as an act of worship and obedience towards God. How? God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue it. You know, they were meant to fill the earth with worship and obedience by bringing God's order and purpose to everything, the result of which would be flourishing and wholeness. And the creation account ends with, to the Hebrew mind in those days, an unimaginable flourishing and harmony conveyed by noting that the first man and woman were both unclothed and yet unashamed. While we aren't told how long that Edenic harmony lasted, we are set up by the beauty of it all to ask, if that's how good it was, then what went wrong? 
To understand the answer to that worldview question, we actually have to step back into the pre-fall goodness of the garden in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, where God gave Adam the parameters uh, for living out his vice regency when he said, eat from these trees, do not eat from this one. The first couple were given unlimited possibilities for obedience, but only one possibility for disobedience. The tree of knowing good and evil mentioned in that passage had to be ontologically good because it was made to serve God's purposes. Everything God made was good, provided it remained in right relationship to him. And subsequently, it functioned according to the purpose for which it was made. So if God made everything good, then what went wrong? Disobedience. Adam and Eve distrusted the character of God rejected his word and acted in disobedience. They became lawbreakers and lawmakers. You see, we're introduced to a new character as the plot moves from creation to fall, an antagonist with an immediate adjectival character assessment attached to his very existence, where the writer says, the serpent was more crafty than all of the other animals. Notice that Moses doesn't explain from whence this character comes, But the reader must assume, and rightly so, that the serpent is indeed a created being. And if created, then he had to be good, at least initially. Much later in the Bible, we learn that this embodiment of evil had once been an angel, but had twisted God's wisdom centripetally, resulting in a spectacularly devastating fall. It's tragic that here in Adam's realm, and by extension under Adam's authority, the shrewd beast engages Eve in a manipulative dialogue. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Did God really say? The very question is frighteningly familiar to all of us as the first couple's progeny. The antagonist we're introduced to here would eventually sing the same siren tune for our protagonist, Jesus though not in a lush garden with unlimited possibilities for obedience, but rather the temptation narrative in Matthew chapter 4 has the serpent's new dialogue partner emaciated after a 40-day fast in a barren wilderness. In that conversation, the serpent would posit, if you're really God's son, you should be feasting, not fasting. You shouldn't have to go through the cross in order to inherit the kingdom. Now, don't miss this. In both Genesis chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4, what is at stake is the character of God. When God speaks, can he be trusted? He spoke the prohibition to Adam. He spoke the affirmation to Jesus. Yet the serpent tempts them by insinuating that God could not be trusted. The basis of all temptation is to distrust the character of God. And character is displayed through trustworthiness and the keeping of promises. Thus, distrusting God's character leads to the rejection of his word, resulting in the act of disobedience. For Eve and for Adam, who was there with her, they took the bait when the serpent promised in chapter 3, verse 5, you will be like God. In a tragic display of irony, they already were like God. They, not the serpent, bore the image of God. And yet, in Genesis 3, 6, it says that they ate I don't think it can be tr- too strongly emphasized that the reason that ate is lay in their newfound distrust of God's good character. Before the man and the woman became lawbreakers, they chose to be lawmakers, deciding what's good and bad without reference to God or his word. Sin isn't just transgressing God's commands. It's questioning his character behind those commands and usurping his authority. It's this disposition that we've inherited from our first parents. And it's this disposition that we destructively cultivate by our own sinful choices. We become a law unto ourselves. We legislate our own morality as if our finitude were capable of bearing that kind of weight. Essentially, we become Satanists who genuinely refer to themselves as free thinkers. Once upon a time in my generation, Uh, We marveled at Ozzy biting the head off of a bat. We listened to our records in reverse for some cryptic message from the underworld, and we conceived of Satanism through the guise of Anton LaVey. Now, I'm sure some of that is still around, but as a society, we've become much too sophisticated in our skepticism about God. 
Far more prevalent today is the message of unhinging ourselves from all belief in a declaration of ethical independence. Perhaps that's why the Satanic Temple has as its mission statement, and I quote, to encourage benevolence and empathy, to reject tyrannical authority, to advocate practical common sense, to oppose injustice, and to undertake noble pursuits, end quote. Think about it. Those are all good aspirations. The problem lay in the accusatory worldview behind that statement, the belief that God is unnecessary or even counterproductive in our humanist pursuit of making the world a better place. All of the deconstruction stories that fill our Twitter feeds these days have this same dialogue, did God really say, as their origin. Perhaps Richard Weaver's assessment of the decline of modern society written over 70 years ago was on to something, that despite the exponential increase in knowledge, ideas do in fact have consequences. And that's our next point. You see, they went from being awestruck worshipers to brazen idolaters. Once our first parents questioned the character of God and deemed his word to be irrelevant, they then acted in their, own, their unbelief, and the consequences could not have been more devastating. In seven short verses, they went from being secure in the security of paradise to opening Pandora's box. At the end of the creation story, they were naked and unashamed, and here in chapter 3, verse 7, they're naked and ashamed, and the shame is only the beginning of their tailspin. The fact that they immediately sewed fig leaves to cover their nakedness illustrates that they knew something was profoundly wrong. There's a problem with their solution, though. When you pull a leaf from the bush, you cut it off from its life source, and it begins to die. Their solution only illustrated the problem. Uh, They were now cut off from their life source, and though still breathing, they were as good as dead. Perhaps fig leaves are illustrative of our man-made religion, all of which is a futile, if not vain, attempt to fix ourselves, man's independent effort to return to a right standing before God. I find it interesting that the Gospels capture the fact that Jesus cursed a fig tree uh, on his way up to Jerusalem. Why? Because it gave the appearance of fruitfulness, but had no fruit. Once in Jerusalem at the temple, Jesus runs out the money changers and confronts the fruitless religiosity that he sees there. And when departing, his disciples find the fig tree withered from the root, reflecting a lifelessness of what they had just seen condemned in the temple. And back in Genesis 3, it's not just the fig leaves that are dying, it is God's image bearers because they've been cut off from life. Autonomy or the making of laws for themselves is far different than they thought it would be. Their newfound freedom was about to swing the gates of Eden in an unanticipated direction where they would be trapped outside of its goodness. Subsequently, the pursuit of human flourishing would be sweat-inducing, toilsome, painful, and ultimately impossible. The tree of life, which had been theirs to enjoy, would now fade from their sight, but never from their memory. In fact, because we were made for life in a relationship with God characterized by worship, our human identity as worshipers was irrevocable. The earth is filled with worshipers today. The problem is that our worship is misdirected. Their distrust of God's character and subsequent sin transformed them from being awestruck worshipers into brazen idolaters. As God's image bearers, we were made for worship. We cannot not worship. But we can, and do in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 1, choose to worship the creation rather than the creator who's to be forever praised. Whether Allah or Vishnu, spirits or sprites, ancestors or ourselves, our insatiable propensity for worship spans from religious to academic institutions. From the philosopher's navel-gazing to the dictator's megalomania, every human worships someone or something, if not themselves. The greatest need for the human race is to be shown our greatest need, to be reconciled to God. And that's what God does in Genesis 3. He reveals their need. They couldn't fix themselves, and the curse extended to affect all that they were stewards over. But God, God knew, and he entered into that broken realm, displaying his impeccably merciful character They had become rebels to God's cause, and yet God would reveal to them the relational distance that now existed between them. 
In Genesis 3.8, it says that they hid when they heard God coming, which is tragic because it's the first time that they've heard God coming and they ran from him, not to him. The image bearers were facing away from the one that they were created to reflect. God spoke to orient them to himself, and his voice is terrifying when we're hiding from him. Perhaps that's why when we speak of God to those who are far from him, they often don't want to hear it. Regardless of all their relationships were broken with God, with themselves, and with all of creation. While brilliant minds scoff at the biblical stories of creation and fall, Tim Keller poses a poignant question. Which account of the world, he asked, has the most explanatory power to make sense of what we see in the world and in ourselves? We have a sense that the world is not the way it ought to be. We have a sense that we're very flawed and yet very great. We have a longing for love and beauty that nothing in this world can fill. We have a deep need to know meaning and purpose. Which worldview best accounts for these things? And C.S. Lewis posed a similar question a generation earlier. If I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, God pursues us in our brokenness. And that in and of itself is grace. Yes, there are dire and devastating consequences for sin. But God, true to his character, didn't abandon us to those consequences. Rather, he initiated a costly rescue mission that would ultimately serve to prove his character to be unquestionably good. And that leads us to the next worldview question and another plot transition. The rescue. Is there any hope? God makes a promise. God's response to man's sin was to promise a rescuer. No sooner had they fractured the foundation of creation order than God initiated his plan to not only set things right, to, but, but to establish an irrevocable kingdom of flourishing. In Genesis 3.15, as God explains the dire, far-reaching consequences of their distrust, he makes a not-so-subtle promise to kick some serpent tail and to take names. Theologians have deemed this promise to be the proto-euangelion, or the beginning of the gospel. When God promises to send a rescuer through the offspring of the woman, he sacrificially commits to destroy the devil and all of his works. Then, before graciously banning the first couple from the garden in Genesis 3.21, he removes their ineffective leaves and provides for them a covering of skin. The consequence of sin is dying and death, but the God here provides an archetypal substitute. One that once that they were out of the garden, the rest of the Old Testament then becomes an indisputable or indispensable rather detailed answer to a very short and complex question. Who is that rescuer? So if you're here today and you're tempted to believe that we only need the New Testament to understand ourselves and God, remember that Jesus and the apostles, for that matter, exclusively used the law, the prophet, and the writings to convey God's rescue story. Though I don't have time to share in this lecture and make all of those connections, I do appreciate the way that Sinclair Ferguson summarizes them, and I'll quote at length. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfort and familiar and to go out into the void, not, not knowing where uh, he was going to create a new people for God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And God said to Abram, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son. And now we can look at God taking up his son to the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold from us your only son. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve so that like Jacob, we would wake up and only receive discipline and grace. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his newfound power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives water in the desert. 
Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost an ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. He's the true temple. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king, the true sacrifice. Jesus is the true lamb. And Sinclair concludes, the Bible is not really about us. It's all about Jesus, and it displays God's impeccable character while revealing every other supporting actor's flaws. Jesus is God's promise kept, and that's our next point. The good news is that God sent his son to rescue us through his life of perfect worship and obedience, through his atoning death, and through his triumphant resurrection. Between the last chapter of 2 Chronicles, which is the chronological ending to the Hebrew Bible, and the birth of John the baptizer, there were 400 years of revelatory science, silence. But we must never equate silence with inactivity. Prior to John's pronouncement that the sacrificial system established in the Old Testament had reached its fulfillment in the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, God was working to bring about that Kairos moment. In fact, there has never been a time in human history when God was not working to accomplish his purpose and to keep his promise. When the opening pages of the New Testament begin with Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the tax collector turned disciple maker was testifying to the fact that God had kept that foundational promise. The rescuer had arrived in the person of Jesus. And from there, Matthew and the other gospel writers provide narrative encounters, profound didactic synopses, and a documentation of Jesus' authority over anyone and everything. The result is this technicolor tour of the landscape of his life, leaving little doubt that he is indeed God's rescuer. His character, impeccable. His works, inexplicably powerful. His word, profoundly simple and yet simply profound. As I alluded to earlier, his public ministry began with the testimony of God himself declaring, this is my son, followed by his being driven into that barren wilderness where he would, have, uh, he would face in that encounter with the serpent. All he would have is the echoing memory of God's word. And yet in his emaciated state, he found God's word to be all that he needed to sustain him. He need not throw himself from the temple to test the father's character. And as the daunting shadow of the cross overloomed the life of Jesus, he refused to shrink back and to take a shortcut that would have sealed our demise. Instead, he emerged victorious from his temptation and for the next three years could not be dissuaded from fulfilling his purpose of rescuing sinners and reconciling us back to the Father. Jesus did eventually find himself in a garden, though, and therein he, found it, he, he began to feel the crushing weight of our sin as the Father went silent. Thy will be done, led Jesus from Gethsemane's garden to the judgment of the stone place of Gabbatha, where Pilate thought he was sealing his fate, but no one could take his life from him. Jesus had vowed to lay it down and to take it back up himself. So Gabbatha gave way to the torturous journey up the Via Dolorosa to Golgotha. And finally, we see it. The greatest display of worship and obedience the world has ever or will ever know. Eviscerated, naked, despised, rejected, Jesus trusted the character of the Father who had formulated this rescue plan. Yet God had orchestrated all of human history to reach its pinnacle on the side of that hill. And there, Jesus, though slain, trusted Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you see the profundity of that utterance? As he breathed his last breath, Jesus unflinchingly trusted the character of the Father. He was acting in unthinkable obedience to the word of God. Jesus, the Son of God, crucified, worshipped and obeyed, not to, but through his last breath. We don't know everything that happened to the author of life after he subjugated himself to death. But what we do know is on the third day, when his foot touched the floor of that dusty tomb, the serpent's head was underneath his heel. And ever since that day, when we look to the cross, 
through the lens of the true story of the whole world. We see that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see that God made him to, know, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become his righteousness. Keller summarizes the gospel message saying, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved that Jesus chose to die for me. Jesus is our hope. I tell you, I've experienced rapturous joy in my life, and I've endured devastating pain and waves of loss and mourning. But when those moments of pain and disillusionment come, when my mind cries out, why God? When I begin to distrust the character of God, that's when I see through my tears the sage words of Charles Spurgeon who said, I am learning to kiss the waves that cast me against the rock of ages. The message is the same to the skeptic within and the skeptic without. God did not spare his one and only son, but freely gave him for us all. How will he then not, along with him, give us all things? You see, the cross was not some tragic oversight on the part of God. It wasn't a vain attempt to inspire humanity to try harder. The cross of Jesus was not an unnecessary display of stubbornness on the part of a good yet misguided guru. The cross of Jesus is the vindication of the character of God before a skeptical world. And when we look at the cross against the backdrop of human history, our only fitting response, trust the character of God. Obey the word of God and live out of that obedience. And that reality leads to our final worldview question and plot movement, the restoration. For far too long, Christians have portrayed a picture of heaven in an uncompelling and frankly unbiblical way. From the Renaissance artists and their naked baby cherubs floating on clouds to the fiction authors emphasizing an ap apocalyptic eject button of what we get away from rather than who we go to, I fear that the world yawns at the prospect of our future hope and that both they and we fail to grasp the gravity of it all. Blaise Pascal once wrote that Christians need to talk about this rescue plan in such a way as to make them wish it were true and then show them that it is. Once again, the backdrop of the entire storyline is not only helpful but indispensable when talking about heaven in a way that makes those far from God wish it were true even if they don't yet believe it. So what will the future hold? All things new. God has promised to restore all things to their original purpose and harmony. And while the Bible doesn't answer every detail about what the future holds, it does make clear who holds the future. And if the Bible is the story of God and if God is good, then we can rest assured that he will keep his original word and intended purpose for his created order. There will be flourishing to the degree that we simply cannot fathom apart from experiencing it through eternal life. Fast forward to the end of the Bible and in its final chapter, we find in the words of Tolkien, everything sad will become untrue. Cornelius Plantiga adds, in a thousand ways, God will gather what's been scattered, rebuild what's broken, restore what's been emptied out by centuries of waste and fraud. In Revelation chapter 21, we're told that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And then in verses three through five, the promise is there that the dwelling place of God is with men. No more tears, no more death. God is making all things new. And then in chapter 22, it, it, it gets even more profound where we find that there will no longer be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship Him. They'll see His face. His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They'll need no light or lamp of the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then he said to me, John records, these words are trustworthy. They're true. Notice how the whole story ends with the character of God firmly and unquestionably established. The curse that our first parents brought upon the world through distrusting the character of God through rejecting his word and acting in disobedience, we have reinforced through our own sin. The world we live in is broken, but not beyond hope. 
Not as long as God is the author and the hero of this story. Yet again, we find God keeping his promises with the removal of the curse. But listen, brothers and sisters, we're not going back to the garden. Creation, new creation, is what happens when the goodness of God is acknowledged by all. Even those fallen angels and all who never trust God's good character will on the day of judgment, in their condemnation, have their mouths stopped and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And those facing eternal self-deification will look at us in awe, we who've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We will inherit an eternal city that's teeming with life. And unlike the garden when God visited in the cool of the day in this city, God will take up his permanent residence and we will never lose sight of him. Now, I have to be honest here. I, I don't like cities all that much. I'm a country boy from Georgia and I prefer the pristine vistas of the Blue Ridge Mountains to the conveniences of public transportation and a million unsatisfying things to choose from. About a decade ago, though, I was teaching this same story to IMB missionary families in a South Asian city and at the end of the week... Uh, we went with one of those families, dear friends of ours, outside of the city into the mountains just to get away and to have some R&R. And as we were out there, we culminated our trip with a whitewater rafting two-day trip back towards the city through the Himalayas. It was fantastic. The, the last day that we were there, though, everything kind of came to an abrupt end. We got off of the river, didn't even have time to change clothes, got into a van. The van drove us to the edge of the city. The van driver refused to go into the traffic of the city, so he said, get out and catch a taxi. And so there, Kat and our three kids, still in that uncomfortable state between wet and dry, get into a tiny taxi that's about the size of this pulpit. And we start making our way through this city. And I remember thinking how uncomfortable I was and how ugly everything was. And I looked over here, and there's the red light district. And I looked over here, and there are people fighting on the street. And on this side, literally, there was a man defecating on the sidewalk. And I remember thinking to myself, I hate this. And then it happened. Then, then the taxi driver ran over a street dog. Like, we heard it yelp. The car jumped and our kids started screaming. And the taxi driver thought it was hilarious. He started driving faster and more furiously and laughing out loud. So our kids are crying, the, the driver's laughing, and I'm thinking, I hate the city. I hate it. And then the Spirit brought to remembrance these words, words that I'd taught just a few days earlier. The true story, the whole world ends in a city. But why? And then it hit me. I don't like cities because they're filled with millions of broken, sinful, selfish people living near one another who will do anything to make their life a little more bearable, even if it means stealing or paying a pimp or even killing somebody. The suburbs and the rural areas aren't immune from it. Broken people just have a little more space and it's a little less visible. The earth is filled with brazen idolaters bound to live out the antithesis of the great commandment and the second one that goes with it. But this heavenly city is brimming with life and with diverse ethnicities, and its citizens are actually reigning with Christ and living out the golden rule. Think back to Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with worshipers and reign over it. God's original purpose fulfilled. Randy Alcorn strives to capture the magnitude of it, saying, to be in resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth, in resurrected friendships, enjoying the resurrected culture with the resurrected Jesus. Now that will be a party. And we will all be with God and will be who God created us to be. And none of us will ever suffer again. Which leads us to the final point. It's the point of the whole Bible. We were made to be forever with God. This past Sunday was a bittersweet day for me. It was bitter because it was the one-year anniversary of my mom's passing. A year ago, I sat by my mom's bed bedside for two weeks while she was in hospice care. And uh, we would sing together. I would read scripture to her. And then there was this one period of silence where I noticed with her eyes closed, a big smile broke over her face. And I said, Mama, what, what are you smiling at? 
she responded with one word, Jesus. Notice she didn't say a place. She said the person that she had come to love and trust. She was facing death, trusting the character of God. So this last Sunday was bitter, but it was also sweet. Because this past Sunday, I had the joy of baptizing our 21-year-old daughter who's come to know that same Savior and put her trust in Him. You see, this is the true story of the whole world. What God accomplished in the gospel is so vast that in Revelation 5-9, we see ransomed from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation gathered around the throne of God, and the song being sung there has as its muse the lion-like lamb who is established forevermore the unquestionably good character of God. And that scene from our future history, it's not being sung as a solo offered by one kind of people. Rather, it's a remarkable symphony where no instrument stands out, but the song is crystal clear. Worthy is the Lamb. The gospel of Jesus Christ vindicates the character of God before a skeptical world and it makes possible for us today to pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven so perhaps i should conclude my time with aaron's priestly blessing that he gave and then the psalmist addendum to it may the lord bless you and protect you May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you flourishing and wholeness so that your way, O God, may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the skeptics and all the nations. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.